What is up, wrestling fans? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Ringside Rewind. I'm Chris Jardine, a.k.a. Snaggle J, joined, as always, by the greatest color commentator in the business, Mr. Chris Doyle. How are you doing, Snags? I'm doing okay, buddy. You know, it's, it's uh, as we're recording this, it's Friday, beautiful day outside. Spring is right around the corner. And, uh, you know, there's not many things I like to do more on a springish Friday afternoon and sit around and talk about an absolutely brutal wrestling match. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're getting into it. It is from Royal Rumble 2000 on January 23rd of that year. Triple H versus Cactus Jack WWE Championship match at the uh, Royal Rumble. And it is a street fight. Ooh, yeah, baby. It's, and what it's, a street fight it was. It was, it, it was one of the great ones. And if you haven't seen it in a while, like I've watched it twice now in the past few weeks, the first time I saw it, I was just like, this, I messaged you immediately. And I was like, okay, so this is going to be our third episode. And then we, um, I watched it again, uh, today before we recorded and thinking, wow, this is really, really good. Uh, but maybe seeing it that often took a little bit of the shine off it. Uh, you know, I watched it for the first time in a long time uh, just yesterday. Uh, and for me, it's kind of weird. And we'll probably get into this more when we're when we're talking about it, actually. But this this like late 99, early 2000 period, I don't remember a lot of it. Maybe maybe because Austin wasn't around. Like, you know, like there's just, there, there's this time period of this, the, the, the Foley triple H angle and the, and the rock as a face. And I, I don't, I didn't vi like vividly remember the circumstances leading up to this match until, um, I watched it and an absolutely another banger, uh, pre-match hype package that they put together. And I was like, oh, and then as soon as the match started, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this street yeah. fight. In the garden, like, you know, th there's a lot of good stuff that we're going to get into uh, on this one for sure. Um, that uh, package that they did was absolutely amazing. And to this day, I am not a huge fan uh, right now of main roster WWE programming. But I will watch every pay-per-view. And I feel like I can do that because of the packages that they put together Bring me right up to where I need to be. I, I, I'm literally the exact same. I do not watch weekly WWE television for a variety of reasons. I think SmackDown is is watchable if you really are jonesing for some wrestling on a Friday. I do think SmackDown is watchable mainly because of Roman Reigns. Um, but yeah, with, with WWE having these seemingly more than monthly pay-per-views, even though I know they're only monthly, but the days just melt by. Mm -hmm. Again, they have these little build packages. You really don't need to watch weekly programming. You just need to catch these little vignettes that they do before each of the matches. And you're like, oh, okay, that's what happened on the last three or four episodes of TV. But before we get to that, we have to uh, hit up the dark matches this week. Our current events, uh, you may have heard on this podcast feed uh, with the uh, ringside rebound. And uh, thank you for checking that out. Uh, we talked a lot about what happened uh, last week on Dynamite as we talked about the Forbidden Door being open. We'll get to that in just a second. But first off, let's talk about uh, the uh, pay-per-view WWE has done most recently, which is the Royal Rumble. Snags, your thoughts? Uh, well, exactly as I anticipated, the Royal Rumble was horribly hampered by the lack of fans. I thought overall it was pretty. It was a good show. Um, I thought that Roman Reigns, Kevin Owens was great right up until the uh, the no sell from the handcuffs. Uh, <laughs> the old the old the old handcuffs no sell really, and then Roman getting to his feet. Like I get it, right? But like that just ruined the match for me because it was again he didn't get to his feet when the ref bump happened that he gets to his feet um i have no issue with either of the rumble winners again we don't know if the plan was to have keith lee go over in the rumble um uh, before you know he ha he had his his run in with with covid-19 um 
I have no issue with Edge winning. I think you could have did a lot worse. Uh, I have no issue with Bianca Belair winning. I think you could have did a lot worse. I think they both create some very interesting booking decisions as we go on the road to WrestleMania. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it was good. It was some of the best WWE stuff I've seen in a while. Yeah, I enjoyed the parts of the show that I uh, did watch. I watched it in two parts. I watched uh, live and then the rest of it I watched on Monday. And the less said about Goldberg um, and Drew McIntyre, the better. I never want to see Goldberg on TV again. Um, let's hope that he's almost done, although he has said in the past that he does have a contract for two matches per year. And with no Saudi Arabia shows, they're going to have to blow that off somewhere. Uh, There's a reason I didn't mention Oldberg in my, uh, in my review of it, but here's the thing. Did Goldberg really need to come out and quote unquote, pass the torch to Drew McIntyre, the guy who's been champion for literally like nine of the last 11 months. Come on. I don't think Goldberg (laughs) has a, has a torch to pass. It, like the the thing is, like, you could you could second guess any wrestling program you watch. You can play Devil's Advocate Booker, no problem. You don't you can't play Devil's Advocate Booker with Goldberg against Drew McIntyre leading off the Royal Rumble. It was a pointless match. Goldberg has no business being there. I am worried, like you alluded to, right? His two matches per year. Luckily, we're only a month into the year, and he's half done. So. Throw him on a SummerSlam against I don't care who, Sheamus, whatever. But like, if I never ever saw Bill Goldberg outside of giving a out of context quote on a WWE Network special, it will be too soon. Speaking of WWE Network specials, let's talk about what premiered after the Rumble on the network. And that was the beginning of the Icons series. This first one, uh, on Yokozuna. I watched it. I enjoyed it. This is what WWE does best mm-hmm. is their documentary programming. If they could do like, I know it's weird to say, cause it's a wrestling, it's an entertainment company based around wrestling, but their documentaries on the product ha- are second to none. And this Yokozuna one. And I'd also like to add, I watched this week, the Pat Patterson one. Mm -hmm. um from a couple of months ago and that was really well done as well i'm interested to see where we go on this icons uh idea uh but the yokozuna one was really good and well timed out too it was over an hour 90 minutes Uh, somewhere in that ballpark i think think it was an hour 11 if i remember if i remember correctly the thing is i loved i love the yokozuna icons i think it was a great place to start and like you, I love the concept of the series. This is what makes the WWE Network must-have. Um, again, the story, like, you and I both grew up, you know, during the Yokozuna era, right? But, like, you know, we were we were young. Like, we didn't understand the, the, the person behind the character. Uh, you know, to see how they spoke about him, how Undertaker spoke about him, how Rikishi spoke about him as a family member. Like, it was just, it was absolutely, um, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, I do look forward to the rest of the series. I know uh, they they did a big promo for the Beth Phoenix one, which I think is next. Um, they've also got Lex Luger lined up. They've got Rob Van Dam. They've got the British Bulldogs. So I do think this Icon series is going to be great. Um, I like what they did recently again, when they do these, um, I can't remember the exact name of the, but like the behind the scenes, um, thing, the one they did recently about AJ Styles debut at the rumble in 2016. That's the programming that makes the WWE network special to me. Uh, I love the Yokozuna icons. I look forward to watching the rest of them. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be great. Oh, I, I think so too. Are you worried that they may, um, censor itself a little bit because a lot of people are saying uh that the icons is their version of dark side of the ring um and using that template could be a little difficult because dark side of the ring while not being associated with any one company 
can kind of go into a little deeper and maybe in some of the not so great portions of people's lives, like the Benoit one and the Owen Hart one. These guys are going to talk about the British Bulldogs, which both of them, I mean, we all pretty much know about Davy Boy Smith and what happened with him. Mm. Then we have Dynamite Kid and some of the things that happened that he did backstage. I don't know if we'll see that in a WWE documentary and not to mention the Lex Luger one. Yeah. I think for me, the litmus test so far was how they handled WrestleMania nine and the fiasco with Hogan coming out after the match. And I was mildly surprised at some of the things that they let Brett say and didn't edit out. I think I'm surprised they let Hogan speak about it at all. Um, now again, you know, Bruce trying to justify it by saying they were going on a European tour. It was going to be Hogan's like, that's BS. This was literally classic Hogan politics, which we've talked about either in, in one of the first two episodes, but I am surprised that they opened that door at all. Yeah. So I'm hoping that this is an indication that they are at least going to try and cover some of these things. Obviously, with WWE, you always get revisionist history. Um, you always get WWE and, most importantly, Vince McMahon's view on what happened. But like I said, I am surprised they went into details with the WrestleMania 9 Hogan stuff. I do hope that that is a good indicator of how they're going to handle the rest of the series. And our final dark match uh, for today, it's kind of an update uh, to the uh, ringside rebound that we talked about earlier. It looks like the New Japan AEW working agreement is going to last uh, just further past the Kenta John Moxley storyline. Uh, NJPW is looking to get into a bigger foothold here in North America. They have just announced a deal with Roku that sees one hour of their programming shown on the Roku channel. Uh, so anybody who has a Roku has available uh, has that available to them. Uh, to do that, basically, they needed Moxley, because Moxley is the IWGP United States champion, and uh, they couldn't get him to Japan to defend it. Uh, we think that uh, that was supposed to be a match at Wrestle Kingdom, but because of COVID, Moxley couldn't get back into Japan. Kenta is holding the briefcase for the U.S. title shot, uh, we see more results from this coming up on February the 10th on Dynamite as Kenta will team with Kenny Omega. It's going to face John Moxley and Lance Archer. Part of it is Moxley is shown and mentioned as the IWGP US uh, champion, which hasn't happened before. The Moxley-Kenta singles match will be shown on the February 26th edition of NJPW Strong, which is shown on the streaming service NJPW World. Yeah, I, I think this is cool. Um, it seems like ADW is the place to be if you're a different promotion right now. I mean, we've got, like you mentioned on the rebound, right? New Japan, TNA, Impact, whatever the heck they call themselves these days, uh, NWA. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of stuff happening. I'm interested to see where this goes. I do think it's going to be a limited time arrangement for sure, uh, but it's pretty cool to see for sure. Now, let's jump into the reason why we're here. As Chris talked about earlier in the podcast, Triple H versus Cactus Jack in a street fight for the WWF Championship at the Royal Rumble 2000, which emanated from the WWE home base of Madison Square Garden, January 23rd, 2000, uh, 19,200. And 31 people in attendance. Chris, how did we get here? Well, we got here. This was the McMahon-Helmsley era. Uh, after Stephanie turns on her father at Armageddon. This is after, uh, in storyline, uh, Hunter and Stephanie get married. Later on is when things actually happen with them. Um, 
during this time, Hunter has won the world title from the big show uh, on Raw. A big show had won the world title at Survivor Series after Steve Austin gets hit by gets hit by a car. Yes, that is a real sentence. <laughs> um, so mankind has come out. He's teaming with The Rock as the Rock and Sock connection, and he thinks that the McMahon Helmsley era sucks. And as part of that, he gets beat up by the reformed Degeneration X. Now, remember, the McMahon-Helmsley era was the reformed DX with Road Dog, Billy Gunn. Uh, Kane was in there for a while. Shane was there for... Oh, no, Shane had left by this point. Um, but we also had the Mean Street Posse was kind of in and out there as well during the McMahon-Helmsley era. So, what's Hunter do? He does. He wants to get rid of The Rock. He wants to get rid of Mankind. He puts them on a in a pink slip on a pole match. <laughs> so the pink slip on a pole match, it's mankind losing and he gets fired. So you think, well, he's fired. That's it, right? Well, oh, no. no. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no. He brings mankind back. Hunter does on SmackDown, except it's a fake mankind uh, played by Midian Phineas Godwin. Real name Dennis White. He was part of Southern Justice, uh, humiliating him in a ring, in an in-ring segment, and in some mini movies. Uh, that leads us to uh, January 10th edition of Raw, where The Rock has organized a walkout if the uh, McMahon Helmsley era doesn't rehire Mick Foley, as you do. Can you imagine the people organizing in WWE? I can't. No, never. That's. I can't think of any other time in the history of WWE where this has been used in a storyline at all. With Mick Foley. With Mick Foley especially. Yeah, Mick Foley when he was a member of the union for two weeks. Also used once again in a different kind of way by uh, Daniel Bryan in more recent memory. Well, not super recent, but maybe more recent to some people out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so... Mick Foley wants a match at the Royal Rumble and he wants it to be a street fight. And Hunter says, very best, let's go. Uh, they meet later that night in an eight-man tag match. Hunter beats up and bloodies Mankind, puts him through an announce table, hits him with the belt, and then beats him clean in the ring with a one, two, three count after a pedigree. After the match, and this was a very important part of the buildup, Foley removes his Mankind mask and attacks Triple H beating him up that was when you watch the promo before the match they take a they make sure that they look at that and show it and shows foley's change in face and his demeanor yeah i think it was i think it was you were very curious to see where this was going to go i mean Mankind was just getting beat around. He got fired. He got rehired. He gets beat around again. So this is like the, the classic bullied kid saying, I, I, I'm not going to take it anymore. And, you know, the mask being taken off and then the subsequent things that happen is kind of the next evolution of this whole thing. And I think that was, like you said, it was it was the key moment in the build to this for sure. So uh, the, the next uh, couple of nights later on SmackDown, Hunter has called out Mankind. He wants to fight him again, and Mankind says he just doesn't think that Mankind is ready to face Triple H at the Royal Rumble. But he does believe that the WWE fans do need a replacement, and he knows just the guy. He removes his mask, and off comes the dress shirt, and what you see is the iconic Wanted Dead shirt. And Mick Foley tells Hunter that he'll be facing Cactus Jack in a street fight at the Royal Rumble at Madison Square Garden. Pathetic fool. But I think the WWF fans deserve... A substitute in that match. A substitute? 
What I'm going to do, Triple H, is I'm going to name him right now. As a matter of fact, I think you know the guy. Uh-oh. Oh, no. No, no, no! And I think you know him pretty damn well. His name is Cactus Jack. official act as part of the WWF is to kick your teeth all over the city of Chicago. Cactus Jack is back! Cactus Jack is back and he's in the human being! Cactus Jack after Triple H! And here we go! Cactus Jack! Yeah, and everybody just goes absolutely crazy. And again, this is one of those moments where Maybe not all of the WWF fans were familiar with with Cactus Jack. And if you watch that particular episode of television, or it's also in the the pre-match package video, Michael Cole uh, was selling who it was really, really hard and, and you know, bringing up some of the crazy stuff that he had done. And you just knew, okay, well, we're going to be in for something absolutely insane, right? You know, Foley has gone to the breaking point. He's bringing out the crazed lunatic Cactus Jack. And here we go. We're going to be off to the races in this absolutely wild, you know, title match where there's no rules. And it's, yeah, it was, it was, again, one of those things that was just kind of the era we were in, right? It was... Anything goes, do what you got to do to sell tickets. I mean, at this point, you know, switching from 99 into 2000, WWE had kind of, or WWF had kind of reclaimed the driver's seat over WCW. Um, But WCW was still alive and kicking at this point. I mean, they were on life support, but Vince McMahon has never been a guy to take us foot off the pedal so we're getting the you know fully changing characters in this absolutely insane match and all the you know the couple other things that kind of set that happened at the rumble that that set the course to go towards wrestlemania the one thing that makes this work is hunter's reaction when mick foley says it's gonna be cactus jack because if hunter stands there and doesn't react that gets over like a fart in church Mm-hmm. Him showing scared was the biggest part of this puzzle. And he had a reason in kayfabe to be scared because the first time that Cactus Jack was in WWF was against Triple H on Raw in a street fight at Madison Square Garden with one of my favorite calls by JR ever which is for a man who wrestled on thumbtacks and barbed wire, this will be like a day at Central Park. <laughs> yeah. So I him showing that knowing, oh no, I know this guy, I know what this guy can do, was a big part to the build of this. Yeah, I, there was a lot of things that uh, that went into it. And again, right, you're... You're still in this kind of period where you're really trying to legitimize Triple H as a top guy heel. And, you know, he, he's, he's going around in, in storyline with the boss's daughter. You have the McMahon-Helmsley era. Everybody hated them. But you kind of felt like he wasn't as over as he could be as a top guy heel. So, well, what do you do? Well, you're going to stick him in there with a guy that he absolutely hates, that absolutely hates him in a match that's going to brutalize both guys and hope that, you know, he's going to come out of this on the other side even more hated than he already is, which is going to allow you to draw money off that heat. And as you're going to see when we go through this, that's pretty much exactly what happened. Mick Foley has said in his books that his job 
was to get Triple H to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I th- I think he did that without question. Absolutely. I I don't disagree. Um, so before we jump into the match, let's take a quick sneak peek at the rest of the card here at the Royal Rumble. Uh, Taz defeats Kurt Angle by submission in just over three minutes. Kurt Angle's first loss. This is Taz's debut in the company after leaving ECW. Taz came in after weeks of little uh, videos on television with the 13 and the and the pulsing uh, music and things like that. They were trying with him with a star and to make him a star. And you know what? I I like Taz a lot. I think he's a great manager in AEW right now. What hurt Taz was he's he didn't have Paul Heyman to mask his weaknesses, one of which is his height. Uh, and two, about a month after he debuts, we get the switch over from the Radicals. So all of a sudden, Taz is no longer the newest girl at the dance. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he got the wind taken out of his sails almost before he got started. And it is unfortunate because... I, I, you know, you're at this point where Kurt Angle is, you know, basically challenging anybody who will, who will come out, issuing all these open challenges and whatever. And, and again, you go back and you watch that. And again, obviously, you're at MSG. You're in New York, right? But the pop for Taz was insane. One of the loudest pops of the night. Come on out here and give it your all. His opponent. It's just unfortunate that he, I don't think he ever really got to the level that he could have in WWE, but you know, he's made a pretty good career for himself regardless. Uh, but you know, as far as in ring goes, I think maybe a little bit was left on the table with some of the things that you had mentioned. Um, next up, we've got the Hardy boys and the Dudley boys, lots of boys with a Z. Uh, the Hardy Boys pick up the W in a tag team tables match in just over 10 minutes. Then we have Chris Jericho. He defeats China and Hardcore Holly in a triple threat match to become the undisputed Intercontinental Champion. Uh, before this match, uh, Chris Jericho and China were co champions. So the less said about that, the better. Uh, two minutes and 39 seconds for the next match. It's the New Age Outlaws against the Acolytes. I would say that probably went about two minutes too long. Uh, then the match we're talking about, and finally we get into the Royal Rumble match itself, and The Rock wins that by eliminating Big Show, 51 minutes and 54 seconds. And that match has a bit of a story, but that's not the story we're telling today. Well, I'd like to point out a couple of interesting facts about this Royal Rumble, though, because I feel like it's my journalistic duty to do so. The most eliminations in this Rumble, Rikishi with seven. The Iron Man of this Rumble, Test, who lasted 26 minutes and 17 seconds. Might be the only time we ever talk about Rikishi and Test in a ultra-positive manner. Test especially. I don't know. I kind of liked Test. <laughs> you were thinking about it. You were thinking about it real hard. Like, can I say anything nice? I mean, you know, listen, I'm sure at some point 
we're going to do a three-hour episode on the life and times of Test as an in-ring performer. And we will definitely talk about his 26 marathon minutes in the 2000 Royal Rumble with, with glowing reviews. But Listen, if like you said... If it's three hours, we're going to do... We're only going to be able to do his uh, TNA run. Pro- probably. But like you said, that's not why we're here. We're here for Triple H and Cactus Jack. The strap is on the line. Uh, the the intensity for this match just on the the intros alone is absolutely through the roof. Like I was sort of like watching it on one monitor while I was working, and one like the intro part started, I was like totally focused on it. Like the intensity was just at a fourteen. It it, it seemed, uh, and I mean. Triple H comes out with Stephanie. JR says, oh, my, this is no place at ringside for a woman. And, of course, she turns around and goes backstage and whatever. But here we go. It's ding, 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 and and we're right into the match. These guys, I say these guys, but really it was it was Cactus who was doing all the talking. And he was trash-talking Hunter, and Hunter again with the facial reactions, showing that I don't, I wouldn't call it scared, I wouldn't call it intimidated, but wary of where Cactus could take this and the things that he knows Cactus has done and worried about what could happen to him. Yeah, I feel like Triple H is doing a great job here at selling the mind games. And JR talks about it early in the match that you know, that Cactus Jack is trying to get inside of Triple H's head. And and I don't know if that's possible, but you can kind of see, right? That's exactly what's playing out in the ring. And then immediately we get into some brutal action. There's a, there's a bell shot for which, and I got to call this out, but I understand JR trying to sell the brutality of this match. But when he says three minutes into the match, that my God, Cactus Jack might be dead. And then two seconds later, they show him on camera, literally standing on his feet at ringside. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously he's not dead. He's still standing vertical. Yeah. But but it did not take long. There were some. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Mick Foley and brutal chair shots. There was a couple early in this match as well. Uh, that that first right one when dome. he. Oh, that first one when he came across, I went into it looking for looking for Mick to get the hand put up. And he puts a hand up, but I think all it did was push his hand back right back into his forehead. Like, Hunter smoked him with that chair and just uncomfortable. I'm, I'm to the point now where I'm very uncomfortable with unpro- unprotected, and I say that with quotation marks around it, chair shots. To the head. You can't protect yourself from a chair shot in the head. No. Unless the chair shot looks horrible. Yeah. And the sound. The sound that it made. The sound of that chair shot to the head. Like, you didn't even have to be looking at the screen to know that he took one. Not like this. Right to the middle of the head. Yeah. It was was bad. It was bad. Um... So then they spill into the crowd, uh, something that you probably do not see in these days and probably will not see ever again, wrestlers fighting in the crowd. I can't see it. Not for a very, very, very long time. I think there's too much risk of, of, of having this happen in the crowd. I'm trying to think of, wasn't there a, re, a recent incident with AEW, didn't somebody grab Jericho or somebody? Moxley. Moxley, yeah. Like, it's just, again, you're putting your performers at risk. You're risking legal liability with the fans that are there if something were to happen to one of them. It's just a lose-lose situation. Uh, it was commonplace in in late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you know, WWE. But yeah, it's definitely something that you're not going to see again. And speaking of something that you don't ever see, 
Chris, I don't think we'd be doing a service if we didn't talk about the old Madison Square Garden uh, setup for the entryway. Love it. Want it back. Want them to figure out a way to do it again. Just want it. I like. I would like to see with WWE or AEW or whoever, but WWE, when they have this Thunderdome that they're building, why can't they incorporate something like that into it? I know that means you don't get the big screen and the all the fancy lights and all the... But using a projection onto that screen um, like they did in a rumble a few years after this, that they were back at MSG, something like that. It just, it, I liked the look of this set because it looked different and nothing they do now looks different. Mm -hmm. It's all designed to be copy paste, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's the downside with the exception of when they do the stadium shows. And I hate the way like, if you look back to the 2020 Royal Rumble, I hated the way that was done. They're coming out of the dugout, you know, at um, Minute Maid Park. And it was the same way when they ran uh, the baseball stadium in Seattle, Safeco. Yeah. They're, they're, they're at the level, the ground level. They're coming out. I mean, half of Edge's entrance, you can't see them. Mm-hmm. Because he's running in behind the crowd where there's no cameras. He's running through the smoke. It, it's it's awful. Yeah. It, it's 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 absolutely moment killer. And WWE seems to be just content with copy paste, copy paste, copy paste. I do miss the era of having to deal with quirky entrances. Again, MSG is you know the the, the for all intents and purposes the birthplace of WWF. Um, and I agree that, you know, when you, when you go back and you look at this particular entryway, when you look at it, when they did, um, the Royal Rumble where John Cena returns, uh, which is a, just a, a, you know, one of those, again, top 10 pop moments in, in WWE's history, the entryway made it that much better because it was just, it was quirky. It was funky, uh, but it worked. And it was, it was cool. Exactly. And we should say it, that removing that entry was not a WWE decision. Removing the removal of that entryway happened when Madison square garden was renovated a couple of years, a few years ago now. So when they did all the renovations and they did the new ceiling and uh, new walkways and things like that, that entrance way was removed. Yeah. So it's not even something that's available to them now. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but times change. Exactly, and that entryway is where we see the introduction of some wooden pallets um, that have been just around throughout all the night. Uh, Cactus puts them down and goes to suplex Hunter on them, and you notice it immediately is as soon as Hunter hits, he looks right down at his leg and... It's a it's a shot later on where you can see the pieces of wood sticking out of this very long and deep cut in his calf. So not even like in the meaty part of it. So that could not have been comfortable for him for the rest of the evening. And then you see later on there was a uh, extra on the VHS copy of this show that shows him getting stitched up and the amount of stitches and cleaning that it takes also reveals that Hunter's parents are in the front row for this match. Because he tells Timmy White or one of the guys, can you go out, let mom and dad know I'm okay? If they want to come back, bring them back, that kind of thing. So just a kind of a little, you know, another one of those behind the scenes things that you always see families not facing the hard camera on that those first couple of rows. Yeah, and then after that, we go to the appearance of the barbed wire two by four, which played an integral integral role in this match. JR again overselling the the, the barbed wire two by four. My God, they can't use that. Forgetting for a minute that it's anything rule, anything goes, no rules, street fight. But 
the barbed wire comes out. Now, there was, if my understanding is correct, they used multiple barbed wires. Like, the whole Earl Hebner giving it to the Spanish announce table, they made a switcheroo at one point, didn't they? Yes. Uh, one first, it's the Mick Foley rule. Uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, a man by the name of Sean Williston, and myself, we did um, role play wrestling, uh, writing promos and and things like that. And one of the things when we wrote shows together, we always talked about was the McFoley rule, which is whoever introduces a weapon is the one that gets hit with it. And that <laughs> that always seemed to happen to Mick. So he brings out the barbed wire two by four, goes to hit Hunter with it, and loses it somehow then hunter picks it up and just waylays uh cactus with it two or three times real good shots you can see the barbed wire sticking into cactus's shirt and through the skin and and things like that like mick foley is not afraid of taking a couple of barbed wire shots if he had to um Barbed wire matches were a big thing during the death matches in Japan. So he was kind of used to how to work with actual barbed wire. So Earl Hefner takes it out, gives it to the Spanish announce announcer, and they put it under the table. Now you notice, you'll notice that they put it under Hugo Savinovich's side of the table. Mick come, does a comeback looking for the, for the two by four. It didn't take long for Hepner to give up where it was. He throw those Spanish <laughs> announce table or Spanish announce guys under the bus. Yeah, oh yeah. Did, did he ever? Yeah. So he goes over and cactus knocks out Hugo Savinovich. And you know what? Hugo takes a hell of a punch. And then you'll notice that it was, and I forget the gentleman's name. I think he still does Spanish announcing for them. Um, takes it out from his side and it's a you can tell it's a completely different uh two by four and the way I've, I've seen it explained is it's hall where the one that the first one they had was real barbed wire because mick believed it should be real uh hunter didn't want to take the shots with that and it was hollywood style barbed wire where it wasn't exactly what you would use normally so just to go for a circle uh carlos cabrera was the other spanish announcer uh okay. for that particular show make sure he gets a shout out in case he listens to the show he'd be i don't want to be sad that we couldn't remember his name i'm I mean, sorry I carlos it, but still it's it's it, it happens but yeah so it's fishy stuff with the with the barbed wire bat but obviously we understand why the barbed wire bat, you know, Triple H at this point is is busted wide open. Uh, oh, listen, then, I'm not saying anything about it because I'm not taking a barbed wire sh shot with oh, anything. Heck no, heck, heck no, me neither. But no. at this point, Triple H is bleeding like a stuck pig. I think JR might have said that six or seven times mm -hmm. um, if he said it once. But then we have, there's a couple of moments in this match where one of them is... Uh, there's a near miss on an announce table, uh, with a monitor and there's a couple of moments with the, the ring steps. And I, I just, I feel like these moves were like a few inches away from maybe not turning out so good. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I've always hated about the announced and I, again, I understand why, but taking, I'm so angry at this guy that I'm going to make sure that I remove everything from this table that may hurt him before I try to put him through it. <laughs> like I, I don't understand it, but I get it. I understand, like, I understand why they do it, but in kayfabe, I don't understand why they do it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if yeah. I'm explaining it well. No, you are. Yeah. It, it, it just, it, it doesn't make, it's one of those things it doesn't make 
Like if you're in a heated fight with somebody, you're not going to take the time to clear off a surface that you intend on putting them through. Mm -hmm. And again, back then we're talking like, you know, we're not looking at like the iPads that they use now, right? We're talking the big giant gray, you know, four inch screen monitors that probably weighed 50 pounds a piece still at this point. So, I mean, you know, they would do some serious damage. But as the match goes on, I think, you know, it just you're you're starting to wonder. And I, and again, this match goes uh, just under 27 minutes. And I know about the 17, 18 minute mark, I started thinking to myself, what what else are they going to do? Because at this point, you've had you've had a barbed wire two by four. Triple H is bleeding like crazy. They're you know Foley's taking some really bad shots, and then. Then they break out the handcuffs. And it's like, okay, well, all bets are off of how this match is going to end. It, you know, he, he tries to get Foley in the cuffs once he fails. He gets him in it the second time. And then I'm just like, uh, unbelievably petrified of, you know, what's going to happen to Mick Foley at this point. And it's a wrestling move that gets him out of it. Like we've seen yeah. all these barbed wire, you know, two by fours and all that stuff. And all of a sudden here comes Cactus pulling out a drop toe hold to drop Hunter on a set of steel stairs that he, the 500 pound steel stairs they always talked about that Hunter had over his head. <laughs> so they, uh, he gets them with the uh, drop toe hold, drops his head onto the, uh, onto the steel stairs and then kind of rolls out trying to get some space away takes back to the entry way and gets nailed once again with a chair shot and his cactus is telling hunter hit me again when all of a sudden it's your friendly neighborhood rock shows up to help out his buddy in the rock and sock connection and uh, nails triple h and then once again one of those things that you look at and you go Okay, so now the cops gonna come out and unhook the handcuffs? Like, was he was did the rock bring him to to unhook Foley, or was he just standing there and thought he'd do the guy a solid? Like stuff like that that wasn't that was never explained. Yeah, I mean you knew like the rock and Foley had a obviously had a relationship at this point. But yeah, just to randomly come out, it seemed and then leave, and then the officer comes out and unhooks Foley, which I'm like, in a street fight, that seems weird, but maybe not that weird. I don't know. That part of the match kind of stunk for me. Like, it just... I think it would have made a lot worse if Foley would have won, but, you know... It is what it is. And then we transition from there into uh, pile driver on a table. The no, the no selling table. That table. And it like, did somebody not forget to pull the pins on that? Because Hunter got jammed up on yeah. that stuffed pile driver. Yeah. But, and then you talk. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, well, you talked about the Foley rule. Because we transition from that into here comes the thumbtacks. I thoroughly love, by the way, that JR and King trying to figure out what it is. Oh, it's a sandbag. Yeah. You're going like, to hit him with a sandbag. Was there, was there some flooding going on at ringside, boys? Like that we needed a sandbag inside at a wrestling event? But no, it's the thumbtacks. And like you said, you know... The Foley rule, when you introduce a weapon, oftentimes you're the guy that ends up getting it. And Foley got it here. The big uh, the big backdrop onto the onto the thumbtacks. And then, you know Okay, before we before oh, we go yeah. any further, I want to go back just a little bit to the to the um, sandbag Yes. Because it's one of the things oh, Excalibur gets a lot of pr- uh, issues with people online that I don't understand because I think Excalibur does a really good job on AEW. And one of the things I love is that anytime somebody goes under the ring and grabs a chair 
or a kendo stick or something like that, he always says, well, the chairs are under there in case one of the chairs that we use in broadcasting or one of the ringside doctors needs one case, one of their chairs get broke. There's always extra chairs under the ring or so I, one time he used uh, when somebody pulled out a kendo stick is that before the show um, they were doing, there was some martial arts training being taking place before the show. So that's why there's kendo sticks. And you know, there's just, it's the little things. And I enjoy that Excalibur kind of takes that extra step to try to explain that that's why that's there. So to me, it kind of made sense in my head watching this match back when they talk about sandbags. Like sandbags is what they use to lift lights and that sometimes. Oh, so I suppose. All it would take would, would be for JR, mostly JR, because it, that's it's not the king's job, but to say, oh, he's got one of the sandbags the production guys used before the show. He's going to hit him with it. And then that kind of gives it a reason for it to be there. All right, you 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 talked me out of that one to a certain extent. I definitely do see the the scenario of you could have sandbags around as a as a weight sort of thing, uh, and again, especially in a building that is mostly used for uh, sporting events like hockey, basketball, that perhaps they have them to keep things weighed down. Um, but it just it was kind of funny to me that you know they thought for a second that Mick Foley was just going to walk around with a sandbag. But well, no, I mean, just out of the blue like that, it makes yeah. no sense. But if you're if you're building the story correctly, then, in my opinion, that's a way that you could do that. And I think yeah. AEW and New Japan does that both very well. Yes. So Foley ends up taking a bump on the thumbtacks. Shocker, I know. Uh, and then he gets hit with a pedigree. It's over. One to no it's not over Foley, after all of that kicks out of the pedigree and i think to me that is a integral part of the match that that re like again you could have just did one pedigree one two three it's over but you do the one pedigree Foley kicks out then he gets hit with another pedigree eventually Triple H picks up the one, two, three and retains his WWF championship. But I think that additional pedigree with the kickout added so much value to the feud, to the match, to the story. Like, because again, it just, it, it cements fully as that guy. He just won't quit. He's bleeding. Uh, he took a thumbtacks bump. He was handcuffed. The chair shots, the bell shot, the ring steps, all of that. And he gets hit with, you know, at that point, Triple H's pedigree was pretty protected. And he yeah, kicks no, out. He, he kicks out. To me, that, that was such... And that's what I hate so much about wrestling now is... I, I'm only okay with people kicking out of other people's finishers if it's a value-added transaction. I do not like this current state of wrestling in WWE where every match has to have six finishers. It's like playing WWE 2K, where you know you need to hit at least three finishers before you can beat a guy. Like, in this era, you know... When somebody kicked out of the stunner, when somebody kicked out of the rock bottom, when somebody kicked out of the pedigree, you know, up, up until the time that Shawn Michaels was gone uh, or before he left, it was kicking out of sweet chin music. You didn't do that unless it was a, a value added moment that people just jumped out of their seats and said, I can't believe it. And this was one of those because you thought it was over. You thought it was one, two, three, night, night. And he kicks out, but then you know it lasted a couple more minutes. But still, such a such a overlooked aspect of of wrestling of yesteryear was how kicking out of finishers was used to augment a story to the next level. And not to undersell that second pedigree, he took that second pedigree into the thumbtacks. 
Yeah. And in his book, he talks, uh, his pronouns, pal, um, in Mick Foley's book, he talks about how that was a call made in the ring to kick out of the first one and to take the second one into the thumbtacks. And in his head, he's going, this is a bad idea, but if I go blind, at least a lot of people will see it. Yeah. You what, know, a, so, what a crazy... Just, just <laughs> God love him. Just completely unsensible. Yeah, exactly. So, so after the match, Triple H is on the, on the stretcher, right? You got, you got good old Jerry the King Lawler saying, oh, Triple H, get Triple H on the stretcher first. He's the champ. He deserves medical attention first. And then, you know, they, they stretch him out. But, oh, no, we're not done. Holy Cactus Jack retrieves him from backstage, brings him back to the ring. And Holy kind of goes out on top. Triple H takes a bump on the thumbtacks, which I really didn't see coming. No. Uh, and so despite the fact that he lost in his quest to win the WWF Championship, Foley leaves with his music playing as the, you know, the moral victor of the championship match here at the Royal Rumble. All in all, a maybe one of the greatest street fights of all time. Ooh. I know. I put you on the spot real bad there, didn't I? A little bit. I'm just I'm trying to think. Uh, Patterson Slaughter? From Madison Square Garden, but that's an older one, probably not a I people. I feel like you'd have to. I feel like you'd have to expand it too. Like, do you is it? Do you count falls count anywhere matches? Do you count gimmick matches like the backlot brawl? I mean, I feel like saying best street fight is kind of a loaded question because what constitutes? Are you saying only matches that were specifically billed as a street fight? Like, there, there's some gray area there. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about great street fights, let's talk about just a couple of months ago on AEW with Best Friends and um, LAX. That was that was a one that was one of the better ones I've ever seen. I enjoyed that a lot. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't disagree. That was a great match. Yeah. Exactly. Now let's get into the aftermath of what happened after. The rumble because things kind of get a little weird for Mick here. Um, they would continue Hunter and Mick continue to feud going into No Way Out. Uh, they had a Hell in a Cell match where Mick would retire if he lost. So he did lose after going through the top of the cage again and going through the ring. Um, it was it was an okay match. It wasn't great i wasn't the hugest fan um i'm not the biggest fan of seeing people jump off high places for no reason um so your mileage may vary on that one but do fear not for your hero will return not but a couple of weeks later uh he was uh linda mcmahon's representative in the mcmahon in every corner four-way at wrestlemania 2000 a spot that at one point was going to go to Chris Jericho. Yeah. And I feel like WrestleMania 2000 is kind of almost sort of like a forgotten WrestleMania of this era. I feel like, and I know that's sad to say because it, WrestleMania 2000 in itself was, was great. There were some great matches. There was some great, uh, some, some great, Hall of Fame superstars on it, but I, it, you also have to remember it comes between WrestleManias that were both headlined by Austin Rock in the main event. So I think you know when you're thinking back, you know, twenty some years, and you think of the chrono the chronological order of WrestleManias back then, you go Austin Rock 2000, Austin Rock again, and it's easy to forget, you know, that. Big Show was in the main event of a WrestleMania, <laughs> which this uh, pro I'm going to assume this is probably uh, his only main event at WrestleMania. But yeah, you know, this was it was a great it was a great card, and I, I think you had a lot of intrigue with Triple H, Rock, Foley, and Big Show. Um, 
And, uh, you know, again, it's a weird time. I do think the match, you know, you alluded to the fact that it, it, it was planned to be a spot for Chris Jericho. Be interesting to see how that would have changed things. Y'all, this was also the WrestleMania where you had the hardcore championship battle royal where the title changed hands 10 times. Uh, that, was, that was a gooder. But it was, was also, 2000 was also the show, I believe, where it was Angle, Benoit, Jericho in a triple threat for... Yeah. Multiple titles. Multiple it was, titles, uh, like each yes. fall had had a different the title first, at stake. Yeah, the first fall was the Intercontinental Championship, and the second fall was the European Championship. Benoit yes. won the Intercontinental title on the first fall, and Jericho won the European title on the second fall, after Angle having come in as the double champion and leaves with none. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's the saga surrounding Triple H versus Mick Foley uh, or Cactus Jack, Dude Love, whatever you want to call him. I always get confused. We've done two out of three episodes, including some of the faces of Foley. Um, So Triple H versus Cactus Jack from the Royal Rumble 2000. Uh, Now, the one last thing I want to ask you real quickly. Do you think that Triple H's career is underrated in terms of him being a all-time top heel? It's an interesting question because you kind of got to look at it a couple of ways. Um, He was always... You have to... (laughs) Wow. I know. I seen it in front of me and because you had it in the notes and I was thinking about it as you were leading up to it. And because there's a couple of ways you can you you have to look at it and then asking me a question, I'll put a question back to you. Do you think Hunter has this career if he doesn't marry into the family? Well, and I will ask I will answer your question by asking another question. Let's say if Triple H was not married to Stephanie or even if he was, let's say Triple H retires in 20. 14 does he is never involved with wwe never involved as a coo never involved as a non-wrestling authority figure just wrestles till he wins 14 titles retires does that change your opinion of him in any way there's so many variables to the career of triple h because of the marriage to stephanie the involvement with the company you know i mean he's basically vince's number two at this point most people would consider him um you know, that that to me, I think, changes a lot of people's perceptions because you're right. There are a lot of people who will think that he has gotten things in the, over the course of his career due to nepotism. But if you're sitting there and you're building a list of the all-time greatest heels, you can't, in my opinion, not consider Triple H's body of work from 99 through... 0405 just some absolutely great work you know we talked about it earlier in the show right like you alluded to in Mick's book saying that his job was to was to get the heat on Triple H get him over as a heel and did it ever work i mean people hated Triple H and it was unfortunate you know that about a year and some later, you know, he blows out his leg. He's off TV for eight months, whatever it was. And then he comes back to this raucous pop. Like he's all of a sudden this big hero that he's going to go win the rumble, that he's going to go win the title at WrestleMania. And then Shawn Michaels gets run over by a car and triple H is back or to the, or whatever. He gets attacked backstage and, Triple H is all of a sudden this big dastardly heel again. I just think, again, I think a lot of people don't give Triple H the credit he deserves because of his out-of-the-ring circumstances. I think he is one of the top ten heels. Agreed. Of all time. 
And I don't think he is underrated, but I also don't think he's overrated. I think he's rated properly. Um, I can get, I can get behind that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I, I go through in my head and I think, and I'm like, there's so much there that I, if I was doing a top 10, I'd probably put him maybe not even top 10. I put him, he would be at the bottom end of my top five. Yeah, I could get that. So I think, I don't think he's underrated. I think he's properly rated. Yeah. I think he's probably, I mean, when you start thinking about heels, right. Immediately you think of Vince. Um, Macho man was an amazing heel, right? He, yeah. he was great. Edge was a great heel. Um, Punk was a pretty good heel. So, like, right off the bat, you know, you're already putting Triple H. I don't think Triple H was a better heel than any of those four guys. So, uh, immediately you're putting him in, like, I think he slots into somewhere in, like, the four to seven yeah. range. Um, you know, if you're again, you're talking heels, you got to consider, you know, Eddie Guerrero. Um, you got to consider Flair's work Flair, as a heel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I definitely think, you know, I mean, if you branch outside of WWE, you, you, to a certain extent, you got to consider Hollywood Hogan, although I don't know how heelish you really want to refer to members of the NWO as, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I definitely think he's probably in that middle of the top 10 range, but Hey, maybe, maybe we'll mark that one down in the, uh, potential show topics. The top 10 heels of all time. Oh, very nice. Well, that's what we think. What do you think? You should let us know by checking us out on Twitter at Ringside Rewind. Or you can also check us out on our website. It's at ringsiderewind.com. That's right. And again, make sure you're subscribing to us on your podcast app of choice on Android or iOS. And like Chris said, you can listen live at Ringside Rewind dot com uh we thank you guys so much for the amazing support that you've given us uh through the first few episodes it's been great uh we love interacting with you guys uh we hope you guys are enjoying the show and again reach out to us at any of our social medias if you have some feedback we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new fresh episode of ringside rewind and until then be kind and rewind